Good morning. I'm Brandon. I'm uh, one of the pastor elders here and just excited to be back after um, several weeks of traveling this summer and having a, a baby or well, my wife had a baby and, uh, and so uh, she did all the work there. Um, but after just the craziness of the summer, finally being back in Columbia with our church family, it's so good. I mean, it's been a whirlwind for us over the last three weeks. Our seven-week-old son has been in seven states so far in his life, so I don't think he'll keep up that pace, but we'll see. Um, so anyway, one of the uh, places I got to travel to and just got back from was Colorado on a work trip um, and got to go to Rocky Mountain National Park for the first time. And man, the Rockies are incredible. I'd been there uh, just get on a ski trip before, but getting to just w hike and walk through them and just, man, they are glorious. I mean, they proclaim the power and the greatness and majesty of God in just ways that are just, just hard to even wrap our minds around. I mean, it just... I felt like just a speck. <laughs> like it just exposed to me how small I really am and how immeasurably great God is because, I mean, I can't put a dent in those mountains. Like in that elevation, like I could barely run like 100 yards up those mountains, all right? And yet God can, it says in Isaiah 40 or 41, I was reading um, on one of the hikes and, and uh, that God measures the mountains in the scale of his hands. Like that's incredible. Like our God, is immeasurably great. And yet, as much as the Rockies proclaim the glory of God, we, God's people, the church of Jesus Christ, we are meant to proclaim his glory even more, far more, in fact. And one key way we're meant to do that, and one key way we're meant to be an anthem, like a bold proclamation for God's glory, is our unity. Our unity. But with all the polarization... You're probably thinking, like, that seems impossible. How do we find mask versus unmask, vaccine versus not vaccine, Democrat versus Republican, all, everything in between? And even if unity is somehow possible, is it really wor worth all the crazy, hard work it would take to even find some small measure of unity? The big idea for today from Psalm 133, and you can go ahead and turn there now if you haven't already, Psalm 133, short psalm, just three verses. I don't promise the sermon to be short, but three verses is the length of the psalm. Um, but the big idea is this, that gospel unity is worthy. Gospel unity is worthy of our blood, sweat, and tears. Gospel unity is worthy of our blood, sweat, and tears. And let's just look at Psalm 133 to begin to see why that is. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It's like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing life forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word now, Lord, I pray that, Lord, we would see Jesus and what he's done for us and who you've made us to be. And we would see your glory and the unity of your people. It wouldn't see me or um, any, anything else.
here today, but your word, you speaking to us, God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would, would speak through me, would give all of us, including myself, ears to hear and eyes to see what you have to say to us today. God, we need you. Lord, in a world that's just ripping at the seams, a unity seems utterly impossible, Lord, you have made it possible. And I pray that as we look at the picture that David gives us here in this song, we would be given a passion for pursuing unity for your glory and our good and the good of those who don't yet know Jesus. And I pray all of this in his name. Amen. So in Psalm 133, I believe what we see is that gospel unity is worthy of our blood, sweat, and tears. And so there's three parts that we're going to break down here um, to help us get that picture in full. We're going to look at the power of unity, and this is really where we're going to dig into most of Psalm 133 here, is the power of unity, what makes it worthy of our blood, sweat, and tears. And then we're going to look at the problem, the problem of unity and what we face in our world today and, and how uh, pursuing unity um, is, is often pursued in, in a variety of wrong ways. And then we're going to look at, at how does Jesus call us to pursue unity, how he did it for us, and then how he calls us to pursue it with our blood, sweat, and tears. And so Psalm 133, let's look at the power of unity. What makes gospel unity worth it? And this is a cryptic psalm. Let's just start there. Let's acknowledge it, right? Like it's talking about like oil on the head of Aaron, and that's not like one of the Aaron's you know in this place, all right? That's the high priest Aaron, all right? First high priest um, in the book of Exodus, uh, Moses' brother. Um, and, and so it's oil on his head that runs down his beard and onto his robes. Like what is that? And then, and then verse 2, it's like Mountain Dew, right? Like, like not the drink Mountain Dew, all right? But, but Dew on a mountain, Right? Like, what in the world is David getting at when he uses these images? And what does beard oil and Mountain Dew have to do with unity? And while this psalm is short and uses some obscure references, it's actually incredibly rich. An incredibly rich psalm about the community of God's people, about the unity that he wants to see and what he intends to do through that unity in you and in me for his glory and the good of others. And David begins by praising God in verse 1 for that. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. And now, like in Christ, we have a unity that David couldn't have even imagined because of what Jesus has done in and through the Holy Spirit. And so David's doing this from an Old Testament perspective, and we have a greater unity than he even understood at the time. In verse 1, what he says is, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Like when he's thinking of brothers, like what he's thinking of there and what he's writing about is the brotherhood that he has with other Israelites, with the others in the Jewish nation, right? And, and yet we know today that what Jesus did on the cross is that he went there to break down the dividing walls between Jews and Gentiles, between slave and free, between male and female, so that we can all, brothers and sisters, we can all be brothers and sisters in Jesus. We have been, through Jesus, made into a family across all ethnic bounds, across all time and cultural bounds. We've been made a family with God's people throughout all time. And in families, unity goes far beyond like a mere mutual interest or agreement on a subject. And we can have unity with, with someone we have mutual interest with on a particular thing, and that unity is pretty thin. But families have a unity 
or at least God intends for families to have a unity that's thick. I mean, family unity is intended to transcend disagreements, right? It, to transcend the, the, the just mere mutual interests. The unity we have as brothers and sisters in Jesus means that Cubs and Cardinals fans can be family members together. All right, it means that liberals and conservatives, reformed and Arminian, Democrat and Republican, people from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation can live together in harmony. I guess that's unity that transcends that thin kind of unity that the world pursues or that the world rejoices in. Though it's probably hard for us to wrap our minds around because we so rarely see it as a result of sin and our own brokenness. And yet David, David gets so excited about it. Like David describes it as good and pleasant. Or even better, I love the Christian Standard Bible's uh, way that they translate it. It says, it is delightfully good when brothers dwell together in harmony. Delightfully good. Like, that's, it's something to get excited about, is what gospel unity is worthy. It's worthy of us rejoicing in it and what Jesus has done to make it happen. It's worthy of us giving our blood, sweat, and tears. That's what David's rejoicing in in verse 1. And in the next couple verses, with all that cryptic imagery, like, what David does is he gives us two images to show us why gospel unity is worth rejoicing in, why gospel unity is so delightfully good and rich. He shows us the power of unity. So each image here, all right, we're going to break down verse 2 and then verse 3, um, both images of beard oil and Mountain Dew. Um, and so each image comes with a promise and a product that it produces. A promise and a product that the unity produces in us. And so let's first look at the beard oil, all right? Verse 2, we'll read it real quick. It is like the precious oil on the head, all right, this is anointing oil, on the head of the... Um, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, talking about Aaron the high priest, running down on the collar of his robes, which priests had particular robes that they wore that set them apart for a particular calling, a particular task, and it set them apart as holy. And so this image of, of oil here is the anointing oil. And so it, it, it's the idea here of the, it's intended to communicate the presence and power of the Holy Spirit, the presence and power of God with the high priest. That was the idea um, back when those things were instituted. You read, if you do a Bible reading plan and you read through all that in Exodus where it's talking about the tabernacle and the robes and the making of all that and then all of these different aspects, like, like there is something to it. It is more than just, hey, here's a bunch of information that has nothing to do with you. It's actually God communicating to us, particularly with the anointing oil, that his presence and power is with the high priest in a particular way that it's not with everyone else. But the good news is, is that we're now, like there's this thing called the priesthood of the believers. That with Jesus as our high priest, we're now priests and we can enjoy this presence and power of the Holy Spirit as well. And so the anointing oil was poured on the high priest and it represented the pouring out of the presence and power of the Holy Spirit for the service that he would be performing for the people of God. And so David He's rejoicing that the unity of the people of God comes with that same promise. Our unity comes with the promise of the presence and power of the Holy Spirit in, in a special way that when we're divided, that we don't enjoy God's presence and power in the same way. It doesn't mean the Holy Spirit leaves us when we're divided, 
but it, it does mean that when we're unified, what, what David is getting at here is that we enjoy the presence and power of the Holy Spirit in a special, unique way to a greater extent. As we live in the unity that Christ has made possible, we will experience the presence and power of the Holy Spirit, and this will lead to something specific in our lives. And that's the product. So this is the promise that comes with unity with the anointing oil image, but there's a product that that produces, all right? It promises, God is promising that in our unity with one another, his presence and power will be with us in a special way, and it will produce in us growth in personal holiness. It'll produce in us growth in personal holiness. See, the anointing oil also set apart the priest as holy. All right, it wasn't just this image of the presence and power of God coming down on him, but it was also setting apart him as holy and called to a particular thing for God's glory. And so as we experience the presence and power of the Holy Spirit through community and through a unique unity with one another that Jesus accomplished through the cross, we'll be able to love one another well by pointing out sin in one another's lives by encouraging one another, by reminding one another of the gospel. We'll be able to, if we're living in a unified way, in a way that, that pours out forgiveness upon one another, that walks in the grace of Jesus Christ, we'll be able to rebuke one another and yet still continue to walk alongside one another arm in arm. And we'll actually be thankful for our brother or sister who comes to us in that way. Like that's, that's what God intends to produce through a, a unity that has the Holy Spirit presence and power producing holiness in us. And so true community True unity in Jesus will lead to growth and holiness and Christ-likeness as a result. So that's the beard oil, all right? Now Mountain Dew, all right? So the, the Mountain Dew in, in, that he's talking about here is the Dew of Hermon, all right? And there's this massive mountain, all right? And so he makes this, David makes this reference to this mountain called Hermon. It's the water from this mountain provided life in the midst of a normally harsh environment, and that's, the, that's what David's trying to drive home here is that, that your unity, your unity as God's people can provide sustaining life to one another in the midst of a, a difficult, dark world, a broken world, a world that, that is oftentimes spiritually harsh, that is in the midst of a spiritual war. Like David is saying that because of the, like the dew that falls on Mount Hermon, you will enjoy sustaining life as you walk in unity with one another through all kinds of circumstances. See, not only did the, the life flourish on top of Mount Hermon because of this dew, but the water, like, it provided life throughout the surrounding areas as the Jordan River found its source in this spring. So the Jordan River, we hear about it in Jesus' ministry, it flowed down from this mountain, flowed into what would have been just a complete desert. But because of the dew that started there and the springs that came up on Hermon, that water came down and it provided life and a, and a rich, vibrant valley for, for the Israelites to enjoy that made it the, the very promised land that God talked about, rich with, with all kinds of things. And so whether fertile valleys or harsh de deserts, life could be sustained along the Jordan River due to that water source on Mount Hermon. And in the same way, David explains that community of the people of God, the unity that we have is one of the primary graces from God for sustaining us through both the good and the bad seasons. Unity is one of the key ways that God intends to sustain us through the ups and downs of life. But God doesn't just merely deliver that promise to us and let it end with us. The incredible part is that it's not just about sustaining life of the people of God, 
But the end product is that it's, it actually is life that cascades down the mountain. Like that's the image there of the Jordan River, right? It's not just life on top of the mountain, all right, where they would go and, and even worship, and, and yet it was, a, it was a cascading life. The product isn't mere sustainment. Cascading from the springs at Hermon down hundreds of miles along the Jordan River, life was produced and thriving. And in the same way, in the same way, Christian community has the power to bring life, cascading down not only to the lives of those who are part of the community, but also in the lives who are closely connected to it. The lives of the people that, that come into contact with us as we scatter about throughout our weeks. As we live in community and unity with one another throughout the week, not just when we come together here on Sunday morning. Yes, the gathering is vital, but the scattering is just as vital. That we're unified as we leave this place. The ripple effects of that kind of unity, of a community living together, especially when the whole world around us is living in, in just utter division, the ripple effects of that kind of community calls us to, to loving God, loving one another, and loving our neighbors. It, it, it leads us to make a significant impact for the fame of Jesus and the good of man, both in our local communities and eventually throughout the whole world. That the gospel would be brought from, from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth, from Columbia to the ends of the earth. And just a picture of this cascading effect that um, I was in a national park this past week, so I'm thinking about national parks. And uh, there's this um, example back in the 90s of Yellowstone National Park. They, Yellowstone was, I mean, you think of it as like this great national park today, but back in the 90s, it was deteriorating. I mean, it was, it was falling apart. All right, the, the rivers were just making a mess of things. They were going off in all kinds of different directions. The, um, the deer population had overgrown big time. Um, and, and so uh, they were trying to figure out, like, how do, we, how do we fix this? The deer population was destroying things. And so uh, they got together, and it was not some big infusion of government spending um, or some other kind of plan, but rather they just took a few, a couple of packs of wolves, and they inserted them back into the environment. That's it. Two small packs of wolves, they inserted back into the environment, and what happened over the, the coming months even, and especially the next couple of years, was, was absolutely stunning. I mean, once you insert wolves back in, deer population goes down naturally, you see that, but, but because the deer then um, began to, to shift to avoid the wolves, the, the environment, the, 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 the vegetation, the trees, all of that began to come back to life, and it began to give firmer banks for the rivers, it began to give places for, for beavers and other kinds of things to come in. Bears, eagles, other predators began to um, come back in because um, other small mammals were beginning to take place that they could feed on. And as a result, Yellowstone began to flourish. In fact, the insertion of just a few wolves into that ecosystem changed the way the rivers behaved. What an impact, right? Of just a few wolves. Like that kind of cascading effect where trees quintupled in size in just a, a couple of years, like that kind of cascading effect is what God intends to do through our unity. He intends to do that kind of effect when he wants to insert us as a unified, gospel-unified people into the world as a foretaste of the kingdom of God into the world that does nothing of that kind of unity so that it can have powerful ripple effects in our community and to the ends of the earth. Like, he wants to see... Spiritual cascading just like that. That's what he intends. That's what David's getting at here when he's talking about that. And especially the way he ends it. He says, for there, 
in this gospel unity with God's people, there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. And if you don't know anything about God's word, um, one, of the, one of the things we know about God's word is that, that God's word does not return void. And when he commands something we see in Genesis 1, like, bam, it's created. It comes to pass. His word has power that our words know little of. His word has power. And his word, he says, he has commanded this blessing, life forevermore. Not just for us, but for those who don't yet know him too. And he tends to do that through our unity. And yet far too often we take unity with a grain of salt. The church as a whole is easily divided. We don't take it seriously. We, we think of it as something just to be left behind at a whim. And yet gospel unity, as we see here, is worthy. It is worthy of our blood, sweat, and tears. But how do we get there? Like, how do we get to that kind of unity? Well, before we get to the, the actual way we need to pursue unity, we need to talk about the problem of unity. We, we just need to deal with the reality that we live in, the problem of unity, some of the, um, the realities of the world we live in right now, as well as the wrong ways to pursue unity that the world often pursues. The problem of unity, I mean, one, let's just start with, I mean, polarization it feels like it's at an all-time high, right? I, I mean, at least in our lifetime, I mean, articles are beginning to proliferate uh, that highlight the fracturing of America, the fracturing of evangelicalism, the, the div division that's happening all over the place. Our political discourse feels broken, <laughs> at the very least. How many churches I think of, as I work across the state with churches, how many churches I talk to that have split during COVID? I mean, I, I can't count the number, unfortunately. Every pastor I have talked to has lost someone, usually more than they can count on their hands, actually. They've lost people from their congregation because this or that political issue was more important than the gospel unity that God uses to bring us together. And so while the world is clearly a divided, hostile place that's captured nowhere better than the Twitter sphere, right? And the, the rage that just kind of flows from it. The church has been no better. And possibly even worse. What a travesty. In light, of, in light of what God intends to do as he portrays it in Psalm 133. What a travesty. We should be standing out as God's people. I'm not just talking anthem. I'm talking bigger church as a whole. We should be standing out, but we're blending in. Look, our culture frames everything as us versus them. Frames everything as us versus them. And way too often, the church jumps right into that same kind of mindset. And yes, Jesus had enemies. All right, There was a them in many ways, for Jesus. He had enemies. They took him to the cross and they killed him. But guess what? Jesus didn't view it as an us versus them. He viewed it as us for them. That's the kind of way we're called to frame our perspective in a, in a divided world. It's not us versus them, but us for them. And this has to start with one another here in this room, that even though we divide with one another on certain issues, that we disagree rather with one another on certain issues, that we wouldn't view it as us versus them. But we would view it as, hey, we're locked together as brothers and sisters, and we're supposed to be us for the world, 
It's much bigger than just our, our momentary political differences or our um, allegiances to particular doctrinal categories. And be clear, we'll get to this in a moment, doctrine is very important, but I think sometimes we way too often dismiss, we far too easily dismiss gospel unity as not being an important doctrine, but it very much is because it's intended to image the Trinity itself. So what, what is gospel unity and what isn't it? Let's start with what it isn't. Um, wrote a super helpful book regarding this issue as it relates to theological disagreements. All right, and how do we, how do we find unity interested in some of the things that, that follow. Finding the Right Hills to Die On um, by Gavin Ortland. Uh, I'm going to quote him several more times throughout the rest of this. All right. Uh, but he begins his work like this. He says, there's an old saying, I uh, can't remember where I heard it, um, that there is no doctrine a fundamentalist won't fight over, and there is no doctrine a liberal will fight over. All right, I'll get that again. There's no doctrine a fundamentalist won't fight over, or no doctrine a liberal will fight over. You see, there's, there's all right, in two ways to a false unity that the world tries to pursue and that the church often will get into. And he's talking about kind of extreme conservative and extreme liberal um, approaches to Christianity when he says fundamentalist and liberal. Um, and they pursue a false unity in two different kinds of ways. One, there's a unity without distinction. Right? In order to be unified, we've got to eliminate distinction. We've got to be exactly the same. We've got to agree on everything because here's the reality. Some of us are bent to find certainty in everything. And yet God, he can be certain about everything. Yet we are unable as limited beings. We are made uncomfortable by ambiguity and a lack of absolute agreement. We're not going to be in complete agreement with anybody. In fact, my professor at seminary would often say, like, if you and another person agree on everything, there's no use for one of you. Right? And that came to academic study. But at the same time, I mean, it, the reality is, is God situates us in different, um, different experiences and different perspectives growing up. And, and look, we all struggle with different sins. And so when we come to the text, like, like, we, like this is the ultimate authority at the end of the day. And yet we, and it is perfectly true without error. And yet our interpretation of this is totally fallible. And we will make errors. And every one of us will make different kinds of errors when we come to this. So we've got to recognize that. And so a unity without distinction is just not possible. It'll ultimately limit down to church, to a unity that's just limited to you and yourself alone, as you're the only one that's right. So that's the, like, the extreme on one side where there's got like real, you, you, the only way to pursue unity is to, to limit it down to this very specific set and we've got to agree on all of these exact things and the list is just numbers. And yet on the other side, there's unity without definition. All right, instead of having distinctions, we're just going to eliminate distinctions, right? That's what, that's what Gavin was getting at when he was talking about um, no doctrine a liberal will fight over without definition. If we just eliminate definitions, we just eliminate even talking about the things that separate us, then, then we'll be okay. Like, we'll be able to have a unity. But the problem is, is that some of us are oriented, we're bent towards avoiding certainty, 
We, we don't want to offend anyone. We're, we're uncomfortable with the implications of certain answers. And yet God does make much clear here. He doesn't make everything clear. All right? He doesn't give us absolute every answer we could possibly, of every question we could possibly think up. He gives us what we need. And he does make clear the most important and vital things. And so we've got to avoid the, the conservative that demands absolute agreement and limits unity to a practical impossibility, as well as the liberal that avoids exclusion at all costs and makes unity meaningless. We've got to avoid both. And I'm, like, like, we're fallible, so we're never going to like, like we always think we look at extremes and go, oh, I'm the one that's perfectly balanced. Well, the reality is, is like, that's another extreme that like, you just think you're right in all things as well, and you're found that perfect balance. The reality is, is, yes, we have to seek a balance, but like, we've got to show one another grace. But because of our limited perspectives and understandings, we will have distinctions within our family. And we will have distinctions. Things that, things that make our unity dis, um, that, that we disagree upon. And it's good, and that's right. We can refine one another in that way. But at the same time, we've got to have defined boundaries on that unity around the essentials especially the gospel, around the clear things of God's word, around the gospel of Jesus Christ, around, around the, the things that make up the Apostles' Creed, the old, oldest confession of faith in, in Christianity, the, the, the things that, that are utterly clear in Scripture, that, the things that touch on the gospel and those essential doctrines. We, we need our list of distinctions so great that we make unity practically impossible for anyone but with our own self. See, true unity, the unity that we have in Jesus is meant to picture something. It's meant to point back to the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Trinity. They're distinct persons. They're, they're three persons, one God and three persons. So, so they're distinct persons, yet they're defined. There's a defined relationship, and it's a unified diversity is one way to talk about the Trinity. So, like, there is absolute perfect unity with them. Like, total agreement. Jesus walked lockstep with the Trinity, and so it's, we only picture Which is why I talked about the Rockies at the beginning. The Rockies portray the glory of God and his greatness, and yet we, as God's people, are able to portray the glory of God and his unity as the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Like, that's, that's an incredible, like, purpose that we get to carry, but it's also a weighty purpose. It's a weighty purpose. And so, like, we are intended to be a unified diversity in picturing the Trinity as we are family with one another. For gospel unity is... And so it's, look, it's not an easy path to navigate. But we've been called not to a unity, or not only to a unity with Jesus, but a unity with one another, with his people. And so no matter how difficult that balance is to strike, the pursuit of gospel unity is worthy of our blood, sweat, and tears. It's worthy. So how do we pursue it? How do we pursue that together? If it's worth this much, like what's it look like to give our blood, sweat, and tears to it? All right, first off, before we get to that blood, sweat, and tears, and we'll talk about what I mean by that in a moment, we've got to start here. Remember, it's gospel unity. 
We've got to remember that it's a gospel unity, which means it's totally dependent on Jesus. And unless he makes it happen, it's not going to happen. It's totally dependent on him. Look, this is what we know about gospel unity. First off, Jesus died for our unity. Ephesians chapter 2. And the first 10 verses of that chapter, it talks about the enjoyment of, of God's grace that we have, how we've been saved by grace as individuals through faith. And then he goes on in verse 11 and he says, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh. That means by the death he died on the cross for us. He has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Yes, amen to that. Like, that is the good news of the gospel. Like, it is not just about saving us as individuals. It's about saving us as his people, to every tribe, tongue, language, and nation. Like, that's the good news. We were separated, yes, from God, but because of sin, we were also separated from one another. And we see the impact of that every day in this world, don't we? Especially over this past year. And it can feel hopeless. If you watch the news or if you read through your Facebook feed, it feels hopeless. Yet it's not. It's not. It starts with being back in relationship with God. And that only comes by the grace that Jesus gave us, by, by going to the cross and taking the death that you and I deserve. He actually experienced that unified diversity of the Trinity. He experienced what it felt like to have separation from God on the cross because God turned, the Father turned his wrath towards, for our sins, he turned it towards Jesus. And he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the pain in that moment was not just a physical pain, though it was physically painful. It was a spiritual, relational pain that the son didn't have to experience because they lived in perfect unity, yet he chose to so that we wouldn't have to anymore. And so if you've never experienced a unity back with God, the life that Jesus can promise, unity with other people that can, that can transcend your political convictions or your, your uh, philosophical convictions or your favorite sports team's convictions, whatever it may be. Like, if you've never experienced that, guess what? By grace, through faith, you can have it today. In Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 9, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and it is not your own doing. It is the gift of God so that no one can boast. Grace means a free gift. And all we have to do is turn from trusting in ourselves to find life, to find unity, to find hope, to find peace, to find justice, to find whatever it may be, and turn to Jesus and trust in him and trust that what he did on the cross is perfect and good enough to bring it all to pass. You can do it right there in your seat. 
or if you want to talk more about it after the service, then I would love to, or Scott, or, or other the staff, or other leaders in this church would love to talk with you about what the gospel is and what it looks like to turn and follow Jesus. But not only do you find life with Jesus, but look, church, we find unity based upon Jesus. First and foremost, he's the one that's got to bring it about. He made us a family, and he can keep us as family with one another, no matter how divided the world around us gets. And Jesus cared deeply for our unity. Yes, he died to make it happen, but we know, like we see his own heart poured out for this in John chapter 17. You can turn with me there. I'm going to take me a second. Uh, it's a fairly new Bible, so all my pages are still stuck together, and so it'll take me a second. All right. John chapter 17. Jesus is giving this prayer, uh, and he prays for his disciples, he, and then he prays for the disciples, uh, us, that would come to faith because of their witness. Starting in verse 20, he said, I do not ask for these only, talking about the 12, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. So that, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. This is the last thing like Jesus prayed for outside of the Garden of Gethsemane. His last prayer he had with his disciples that we have recorded in Scripture at least. And Jesus did what? He prayed for us, particularly for us, not just his disciples then, but for us, you and me, that we might have unity. So that, why? The world would know the love of God. So that the world would glorify God. Like Jesus, like this was something Jesus died for and prayed for passionately. Like, unity is not something just to be written off as, well, we'll have it with a few people, and then we'll, you know, like, one day, yes, Jesus comes back, and he'll make us perfectly one. No, unity is something worth fighting for because Jesus died for it. He died for it, and he prayed for it. And then, when he ascended to the Father, he provided for our unity by sending us the Spirit. In, in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 7, this is what it says. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Huge part of this calling, what Paul's referring to here, is unity in the gospel. And he says, you walk in a manner with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of you according to the measure of Christ's gift. And that grace is the Spirit of God. He's given us the Spirit. He's poured out his anointing oil on each and every one of us that have turned and trusted in him. And so Jesus not only died for our unity, he not only prayed for our unity, but he also provided for our unity. And so we, it is a gospel unity, and it is totally dependent on him to bring it to pass. And yet, just as Paul calls us in, in Philippians chapter 2, he says, work out your own salvation just as it is God who works it in you. We work alongside. We get to partner with God in this work of bringing about unity among us. And so we've got to give our blood, sweat, and tears for it. 
got to give her blood, sweat, and tears. So I mean something different by each blood, sweat, and tears. So we're going we're gonna to hit that, all right? Gospel unity is worthy. It's totally worthy, and it's worthy of our blood, sweat, and tears. First off, what do I mean by blood? I mean blood of taking the path of humility. Taking the path of humility. Unity is personally costly. If we're going to see it come to pass here at Anthem, if we're going to see it pa- come to pass in the greater American church, if we're going to see it come to pass across the global church, like, like it's going to be personally costly because it requires humility. It requires sacrificing self for others just like Jesus did on the cross. Philippians chapter 2. This is what it says, starting in verse 1. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. In other words, be unified. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Do you hear that? In humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, it doesn't mean forget yourself completely, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or wrested to himself, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He did that. He humbled himself for the sake of our unity, our unity with God and our unity with one another. And so it requires humility. Paul shows us why in Romans 14, 13. He says, therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. How often when we disagree do we think more highly of ourselves than those we're disagreeing with? Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Gavin Orton said, this in light of that verse he said like paul we must even be willing to make a sacrificial adjustment for the sake of our unity with others in the body of christ if maintaining the unity of the body of christ is not costing you anything if it doesn't hurt then you probably are not adjusting enough he goes on to write he says in life and theology it is is usually not sheer ignorance that causes the most intractable problems but ignorance about ignorance Not the uncharted territory, but the stuff that is completely off your map. This is one reason why humility is so important. Humility teaches us to navigate life with sensitivity, with sensitivity to the distinction between what we don't know and what we don't know that we don't know. I've had a lot of school in my life, and one thing that uh, my, my schooling taught me more than anything was how little I actually know. It humbled me. They sat in class, and I learned from those with so much knowledge, and yet them acknowledging at the same time how little they know about just one particular subject, much less all the subjects we could possibly study in the world. He goes on to write, he says, this encourages us to engage in theological disagreement with careful listening, a willingness to learn, an openness to receiving new information or adjusting our perspective. He says, pride makes us stagnant. Humility makes us nimble. Here's something I know that for many of us that he, goes, he addresses that's important for us to hear. 
He says, some worry that too much focus on humility will make us wishy-washy. But humility is not the antonym to strength. On the contrary, those who tremble at God's word are those most likely to stand against human opposition. I know I'm quoting a lot of Ortland here, but it's just really helpful. He goes on to say, often the very strength that would help you win a battle enables you to avoid the battle altogether. We should eagerly pursue the kind of theological conviction, as well as I would say political convictions and, and a whole host of other convictions in our life. We should eagerly pursue that kind of conviction and strength that is really not only to fight for the truth, but also to avoid fighting in order to promote the gospel above all. Look, our culture rewards the prideful. It says, this is the right way, and I know for sure, and there is no other right way. But Jesus says the first will be last, and the last will be first. And yes, the gospel is the only way, and we must make that demand because Jesus makes that demand. But that's not everything we could possibly think about Jesus is for sure and clear and right like that. We must embrace the path of humility with one another and then with the world around us. It is the path of faith. Humility is the path of faith. Right? We've got to humble ourselves in order to repent. It's the path of our Savior, Philippians chapter 2, and it is the path of unity. And so it requires blood. It requires us sacrificing ourselves, giving up, experiencing pain. If it's not costing us something, like Orland said, then we're not really pursuing unity. So it's worthy of our blood. It's also worthy of our tears. It's worthy, when I talk about tears, I mean just simply making ourselves vulnerable to the possibility of betrayal, of relational hurt. Because if we're really going to be unified with one another, we've got to be close enough with one another that we could be hurt by one another. And we're going to be, because we're still sinners. And so we've got to be willing to shed tears. You've got to be willing to be hurt. Jesus took the risk of betrayal, and he was. Judas betrayed him to the cross, and then even his closest friend, Peter, denied him three times within his eyesight. Jesus took the risk of betrayal. He was willing to share tears for our unity, and we must be willing to make ourselves vulnerable with one another for the sake of unity. Then lastly, I want to address the sweat, doing the work of unity. All right, doing the work of unity. It starts with committing. Look, the church isn't a place we go to. The church isn't a place we go to. Yes, we come here and we worship together. We gather as God's people. But the church isn't just a place we go to, but it's a people we commit to. And we can't be truly unified with one another if we're not committed to one another. We've got to be committed to a specific people because we can't live out this kind of rich gospel unity Psalm 133 talks about that, that displays God's glory to the world with just kind of Christians in general all over the world going about in kind of our own individualistic American lives. But rather, like, we can only live this kind of unity out when we commit to a particular people in a particular place. And that's why we talk about church membership here. And, and it's that step of committing and saying, I'm going to be unified here, and I'm going to work through, and I'm going to sweat, and I'm going to give my blood, sweat, and tears for the sake of unity right here more than anywhere else. For the sake of Jesus and his fame, for the sake of the mission and vision right here. And so we've got to commit, and committing takes work. Like, like it takes connecting with one another. It's not just connecting with a pastor or two. Like we've got to, we've got to have a dense connection with one another. 
It can't just be whoever's up here on Sunday morning that connects all of us together. But rather, it's got to be a dense connection of connection groups and fellowship that happens way beyond that. We've got to commit to going deep with one another, taking the risk of betrayal, humbling ourselves together, and a couple other things. We've also got to overestimate one another. We've got to overestimate one another. Doing the work of unity requires overestimating others. See, 1 Corinthians 13 says love hopes all things. Love hopes all things. It believes all things. The idea there is that, that it assumes the best rather than the worst. And so we've got to overestimate others when we disagree with someone. That means we've got to use our imaginations, but our positive imaginations. Here's the problem. We all, we didn't leave our imaginations behind when we were kids, all right? Like, we all still have great imaginations. The problem is, is that our imaginations are bent towards the negative, Right? We imagine all of the, the terrible things that could happen to us, and thus we become anxious or fearful. We imagine all the, the terrible things someone is saying about us behind our back, and so we become angry and vengeful, and yet they didn't even actually say those things, right? Um, and so we, we imagine all the possible scenarios. Look, I do this. I, get, I, like, I stay awake at night at times um, when I'm in uh, argument or disagreement with someone because I'm playing through all the different ways that I could possibly... Um, you know, the conversation the next day could possibly go. Our negative imaginations are incredibly powerful. And yet, if we are going to pursue gospel unity, we have got to cultivate positive imaginations of one another. Ways that think the best, that that hope the best, that believe the best about one another, that ultimately overestimate one another. Because you're not estimating each other as sinners. You're estimating each other as spirit-filled people of God. And so imagine fantasy world about one another. But imagine what the Spirit could be doing in one another. Imagine what the Spirit could be teaching or showing each other when you disagree. That, that maybe the Holy Spirit has helped them to see something that you've yet to see. Maybe he's helping them to emphasize something that, that you've yet to, to understand. Maybe he's using their, their disagreement, right or wrong, to protect something. I remember a professor of mine at one point um, had people in my town that... Um, they were uh, King James Version of the Bible only. So, you know, Christian Standard, nothing else. Like it just ESV, whatever you used. Unless it was King James, it was the only right view of, the only right kind of scripture to read. And I used to like have extreme pride of just like looking down on that kind of perspective. And I still don't disagree. Or I still disagree with that. Like, right, I've got an English Standard Version right here. So like I clearly don't agree with that. And yet... Professor was so helpful, helped me to recognize, like, maybe some of the problem we see in Christian publishing is that there's just way too many translations. There was something beautiful when we only had one English translation that we shared same scripture memory, and we could recite things together, and there was a beauty in that. And, and maybe through that small emphasis of a certain sect of people within Christian circles, like, God is actually going to use them and that emphasis to help kind of pull back on our complete um, just proliferation of, of translations and hold on to some sort of unity. Like, you can still disagree with it and find it to not be right and yet see how God might be working and using them because he is sovereign, right? He's sovereign over all things, especially as people. So let's overestimate one another. And lastly, we need to triage. You got to triage, all right? Uh, Albert Muller, president of the seminary I went to, uh, used to t- talks about this thing called theological triage. So first off, we've got to triage our theology. I'm going to run through this super quick. It's going to be on the screen. 
Just pull your phones out and take a picture of these questions, all right? Because I think these questions are really helpful. I pulled them from Gavin Ortland's book. Um, you're not going to have time to write them down. So take a picture, or if you need, you're sitting where you can't quite see a screen well, then uh, I can we'll get them to you, okay? Um, but here, here's for theological triage, all right? To cons- what he's talking about here is how do we work through what is worth dividing over? Like the essential things, the gospel things, the things that actually do define the boundaries of Orthodox Christianity and even the, what we are saying we're uniting around as a particular local church. Ortland uh, puts together four questions for us. He says, how clear is the Bible on this doctrine? What is the doctrine's importance to the gospel? What is the testimony of the historical church concerning this doctrine? And what is the doctrine's effect upon the church today? Four questions to help us think through Like, how vital is this to our unity? And then, I believe we not only have to triage our theology, but we need to, when we're getting in disagreements, to triage our hearts. Triage our hearts. And Ortland gives us, again, several good questions to think about this, to examine ourselves. And so I want you to just, as I take pictures of this, too, as it goes through, but but also just be thinking about maybe a disagreement you have, a, a, a disunity you have with someone, and and examine your own heart. Don't, the temptation's going to be to think about answering the question for the other person, okay? Don't do that. Think about answering the question for yourself. Is there anything in my heart that takes pride in my view or feels superior? If so, how can I direct my heart back to the gospel as the only source of my identity and my rightness? Number two, Is there anything in me that's disrespectful or dismissive of the importance of this issue? Do I feel superior to or exasperated with those Christians who elevate this issue more highly than I do? And how can I better understand their concerns and move toward them? And lastly, number three, how have I taken seriously the urgency of Christ of the church in John 17? So look, we've got to bleed, we've got to shed tears, and we've got to sweat. We've got to sweat for gospel unity because it's worth it. The last part of sweating for it is praying. Praying. Look, if this is where Jesus started, it's where we must start to. And so that's how we're going to end this morning. It's with a prayer that, that Gavin wrote. I want us to pray this prayer together. You don't have to repeat after me. I'm just, I just mean, let's pray this prayer together because I think it's so vital for us to start where Jesus started with unity. So let's wrap up this morning with this prayer. Lord, where we have sinned, either by failing to love the truth or by failing to love our brothers and sisters and our disagreements about the truth, forgive us and help us. For those of us who tend to fight too much over theology, help us to remember that you also died for the unity of the church, your precious bride. God, give us softer hearts. For those of us who tend to fight too little over theology, help us to feel our need for courage and resilience. Give us stronger backbones. Lord, help us to be a people who tremble at your word and therefore ultimately fear no one but you. Lead us toward that healthy of adhering to all your teaching while embracing all your people. God, we pray all of this in Jesus' name.
Amen.